Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you on the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. His other website, rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. And Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. I understand that you've been doing a deep dive into countries what makes the difference between a country that melts down with COVID, like the United States have? We are 4% of the world's population. We have one-fifth of the world's COVID cases and deaths versus countries that are not experiencing being wiped out by COVID. Tell us about this. Yes, I think it's a wonderful object lesson in something that you and I have talked about uh, before. What we see in countries that are otherwise quite different, like Taiwan or South Korea on the one hand, or New Zealand on the other, or the People's Republic of China, Vietnam and Cuba on the other, all these different kinds of countries with different economic and political systems, they do have one thing in common. They are not fundamentalists in the religious sense when it comes to the balance between private enterprise and the government's role in the economy. In other words, in all of those societies, the government has a strong position in the economy. It does a great deal of regulation, and it is appreciated by the population for the work that it does. Uh, not blindly, not without criticism, but it is given a respected place in the society. And what that enabled those countries to do was to say to the government, your job now is to mobilize public resources, public wealth on the one hand, private resources, private wealth on the other, and really put them together in a solid campaign to save us from COVID-19. What you didn't have in countries like the United States and the United Kingdom was a comparable openness to the powerful role of the government. There you have a kind of fundamentalism which says that the government, when it touches everything, makes a mess, and the private sector is God's gift to the human race. This kind of lopsidedness weakens the government, 
makes it a, an object of suspicion, distrust, hostility, or even violence, as we saw on January 6th. But most important here, it means that you haven't got a government in a position ideologically, politically, culturally, to mobilize the resources, and that's what happened. We didn't do it in this country, and we are paying an awful price. My only hope, the silver lining, is that people will begin to understand that you ought to ask the question, who is better equipped to protect public health, the private sector or the government? And to understand that in the answer, the government's important role has now been demonstrated and the cost of not giving the government an important role has also been demonstrated uh, to our regret. I've been positing for some time. I've laid it out in two of my books. It's in the op-ed I wrote for medium.com that there is only one power on earth capable of constraining and restraining toxic billionaires or toxic corporations that want to rip off consumers, that want to pollute the air, in the case of the billionaires who want to control or pollute our political system, and that one entity is government. And that's why, starting with the Reagan revolution, the billionaires behind this whole thing and the big corporations behind this whole Reagan revolution and, and Thatcherism in the UK as well, their main song was government is terrible, big government is dangerous. And he even got bought by Bill Clinton, who came out in one of his, in his second inaugural address and said the era of big government is over. Do you agree with that analysis? And if so, can you speak to that? Yes, I think you, uh, what you're pointing to is the great dilemma for capitalism. If you have a capitalist economic system that makes a few people wildly rich, those billionaires you referred to, but at the same time, it is embedded in a system of universal suffrage where everybody gets a vote. Well, the majority of people aren't billionaires. The majority of people are not rich. The majority of people are not employers. The majority are middle to low income employees. And if they're the majority and they have one person, one vote, it's only a matter of time before they figure out that they can use their political power to undo the inequality generated by a capitalist economy. So you have capitalists everywhere terrified of what I just said, fully aware of what it implies, and therefore using their money to stop up the, the political system, to buy the politicians, to buy the parties, so it does not play the role of representing the mass of people, the government, in order to do what you just said it needs to do to constrain those billionaires. But here's, in a sense, the flip side. The irony of ironies is this. What holds those billionaires back saves them from destroying the goose that is laying their golden eggs. That's what happened in the 1930s. The rising up of the unions, the socialists, the communists, to create a new deal and to tax the, the super-rich. That's what got us through the Great Depression without a fascism in the way that it happened in Italy or Germany or Japan. We don't have that now, and so these billionaires, even during a, a pandemic, get themselves richer and richer, keep the government immobilized, and now we see in the deaths of our fellow citizens what the awful consequences are of an unconstrained uh, employer class. Right. So if the challenge 
is to essentially re-educate Americans that both Reagan and Clinton were wrong when they said big government is a negative force in the lives of Americans and that big government can actually do things for Americans when it's directed appropriately. How best do we go about educating people? Is it just an example of doing it? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, Joe Biden and, and Congress is pushing through legislation that actually works. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't see them doing it, frankly, and so I haven't asked myself that question. But let me use my remaining minute to make a point. The government is already doing it. The government has put the American economy on life support because the American economy, including the big businesses run by those billionaires, is now deeper in debt than it has ever been in American history. Why? Because the Federal Reserve is making available unlimited amounts of money at virtually zero interest rate, which every corporation is borrowing uh, to beat the band. So the government is already massively intervening to prop up the economy. The irony is what it does to get them into deeper debt they don't want to do to prevent us from losing uh, 400,000 of our fellow citizens uh, to a horrible COVID death. So the, in a way, the system has admitted that it needs big government to help it, but it is so selective that it doesn't understand the very lesson it is relying on. In other words, these corporations and billionaires are more than happy to take uh, trillions, literally, of dollars from the Fed, but they don't want the Treasury Department to give even billions of dollars to average Americans. Yes, it's an amazing schizophrenic response of people who really do not want to see much beyond their checkbook, and they will come to regret that their viewpoint is so myopic. Yeah, amen. Professor Richard Wolf, it's always great speaking with you, sir. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Take care. Prof. Wolf with two Fs on Twitter, uh, democracyatwork.info, the website. Professor Richard Wolf, one of the greats. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. How are the Republicans trying to normalize January 6th? We have a special video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about how a fellow named Errol Graham, he's a 57-year-old African-English individual who starved to death recently in the United Kingdom. The neoliberal Thatcher policies are apparently echoing through the British system now in a rather substantial way, the same way that Reaganomics is echoing through the American system. And we've got tens of thousands of Americans who die every year because they lack health care or they can't afford copays and things. And we have literally millions of children in America who are malnourished or even go to bed hungry every night. It's pretty breathtaking stuff. And I think you'll find the rant particularly interesting or useful and hope you can share it with your friends so when you pick it up it's over at tomhartman.com thanks again richard in minneapolis hey richard thanks for watching us on free speech tv what's up uh, yes, the uh, reason why I'm calling, if uh, the Republicans don't find or don't want to find Donald Trump guilty of uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, the question that I have, uh, 
why don't the other states, like, for instance, uh, Arizona and the other state where he was trying to get those 11,000 votes, why can't they go after Georgia. him, prosecute him? Yes, Georgia. And if they found him guilty, is would they put him in prison? Because that's what the guy needs. He's got to go to prison. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that Arizona and Georgia both have Republican governors, Republican-dominated legislatures, Republican attorneys general, I, I, I believe, in both states. Yes, I know in, yes, in Georgia. Right. I, I believe so in Arizona. So those would have to be the people who would go after Trump. And that ain't going to happen. In fact, the Arizona Republican Party um, just basically censured Cindy, Cindy McCain, John McCain's wife, Jeff Flake, their former senator, and uh, one other person, uh, one of you know, a well-known uh, Republican uh, from Arizona for for calling out Donald Trump. I mean, they've gone full conspiracy theory nutcase. Uh, the GOP in, in Arizona and well, the, and the GOP in, in Georgia is in crisis. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Richard. If he's found guilty, can't these states prison him? If uh, yeah, they could. And New York, it? New York State is going to try that, but I, you know, I just don't think that any of these states that have Republican governance, this literally, crimes have become politicized. There's one party that says that when politicians engage in criminal activity, they should go to jail. That's the Democratic Party, and they and they've seen their own members go to jail. Remember, remember Representative Jefferson? I believe he represented uh, part of Louisiana, the New Orleans area. Um, he yeah. he had a uh, hundred thousand bucks in cash in his freezer. He's in prison right now, or at least he was for a while. So one party says when somebody when you have a corrupt politician, they should go to jail. The other party, the Republican Party, says when you have a corrupt politician, even if his corruption kills a half a dozen people, even if his corruption threatens to take down the entire American experiment, you don't hold them responsible because that just wouldn't be prudent. And I, I hope to God that Americans are realizing this very clear difference between these two political parties right now. I realize, you know, the influence of money and all that is, is on both sides, quack, 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 but there is a huge difference between the Democratic and the Republican parties. Well, I thank you much. You have a good day. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I just, I am not seeing the political will to hold Donald Trump accountable anywhere in the Republican Party outside of basically you've got Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Ben Sass, and there was one other uh, Republican who voted to go ahead with the trial. That wasn't even, you know, we think there's something wrong here with Trump. That was, let's hear the evidence. Let's just hear the evidence. 45 Republican senators said, we don't even want to hear the damn evidence. I mean, let that sink in. This was, you know, it was a headline that 45 Republicans voted to say, no, we don't want to hear evidence. We don't want to have a trial. But I don't think the gravity of that, the reality of that, the horror of that has sunk in yet for most Americans. Anyhow, back with more of your calls and the news of the day in just a moment. I want to talk about arguments that Republicans are making to normalize Donald Trump and now there behavior, fascist behavior. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. 
Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So... The Republican Party is laying out a series of very specific arguments about why it's, it's just fine, uh, you know, that Donald Trump and members of the Republican Party and members of his campaign and at least one United States Senator, Tuberville, got together on January 5th, conspired to bring down the government of the United States to stop the certification of Joe Biden as president and to uh, install Donald Trump as dictator for life. I mean, it's breathtaking when you consider it. Sarah Burris uh, over at Raw Story compiled a list of these, and, I, and she did just a great job. It's, it's nice and tight. She said, first of all, the, the Republican Party has claimed that investigating these crimes or even having an impeachment trial of Donald Trump is, quote, too divisive. It's dividing Americans at a time that we really need to have unity. Unity is the important thing here, not division. This is the, the Republican argument, uh, the, the first of their arguments. The second argument that they're making is, and Rand Paul made this on the floor of the Senate day before yesterday, that impeachment is unconstitutional because Donald Trump has already left office. Now, the obvious flaw in this and, and it's so obvious that it's like, why would anybody even, listening to Rand Paul, even consider him, uh, you know, a, a serious, I, I was going to say, uh, you know, a litigator, or, uh, you know, a serious argument here, but Rand Paul's not a litigator, he's, he's not a lawyer. He's an, an ophthalmologist, he's an eye doctor, um, who's certified by a board that he himself created and he runs out of his own house. <laughs> But in any case, certified to practice. But here's, here's how it works, right? For future presidents, if Rand Paul's logic stands, if a future president tries to overthrow the government after losing an election, let's say in 2024, 
Tom Cotton runs for president against Kamala Harris and loses. And he organizes an insurrection against the inauguration of Kamala Harris. One of two things is going to happen. Either he succeeds and he gets installed as president for life, and that's the end of the American experiment, or he fails, in which case, according to Rand Paul's logic, he gets off scot-free, which means that, what, he just, four years four years later, I mean, you know, Tom Cotton's a young guy, four years later, he just tries it again? I consider it unlikely that Donald Trump is going to try to run for president in 2024, but, you know, stranger things have happened. But the bottom line here is, are we going to say that presidents in their final days in office can try to overthrow the government to hang on to their office without any consequence if they fail? We know what the consequence is if they succeed. It's the end of America. But if they try and fail, oh, well, nice try. Better luck next time. Is that what? Well, that's obviously what Rand Paul wants. Another excuse that they're using that Sarah Burris lays out is that this whole process is too rushed. It shouldn't be so rushed. We're, we're, you're just, we're just moving way too fast. Lindsey Graham uh, tweeted, quote, the president of the United States was impeached in 50 hours without one witness being called. Aw. Because we didn't see this all on our televisions. We didn't hear his speech. What, Lindsay? Come on. The fourth claim, this is Marco Rubio's claim, is that the only countries that impeach former presidents are third world, third rate, essentially Latin American dictatorships. This is what Rubio actually said, and I quote, This is terrible for our country. It sets a terrible precedent. Only in the third world do you see this habitual use of prosecutions of former leaders. You go through Latin America, virtually every immediate past president is under indictment or in jail. Well, first of all, it's not altogether true, but, you know, hey, some of those countries are very corrupt. Surprise, surprise, they end up with corrupt leaders. And surprise, surprise, there, there are people within their government who are trying to clean up corruption and hold those leaders to account. Does that mean that we shouldn't? That we should not hold Donald Trump to account for his crimes? Seriously, Marco Rubio? And then, uh, of course, I think it was on uh, the, the Fox uh, Business Channel, maybe it was on CNBC, uh, the host asked Marco Rubio, so what do you think about uh, Ivanka planning to primary you? And he goes, bah, 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 bah. Well, and finally, uh, the Republicans are saying, yeah, the Democrats are just as bad as Republicans. Right? Again, Rand Paul. What of Democratic incitement to violence? No Democrat will honestly ask whether Bernie Sanders incited the shooter who nearly killed Steve Scalise. Bernie, Bernie never said we need to go to the to the congressional baseball game and shoot Steve, and shoot Bernie never said we need, come on again Rand Paul just pulling stuff out of his backside and right wing hate radio amplifying it Fox News giving it a platform and all across America Republicans going, well, I guess that makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, he wouldn't say he's a smart guy. He wouldn't say that if it wasn't true, would he? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. It's your media support group for We the People.
We'll be right back. Hey, my new book is out. The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. In this book, I trace the history of the struggle against oligarchy from America's founding to the United States' war with the feudal Confederacy to President Franklin Roosevelt's struggle against economic royalists who wanted to block the New Deal. In each of those cases, the oligarchs lost the battle. But with increasing right-wing control, we're at a crisis point. Want to know more? You can sign up for three virtual book events. Powell's virtual event in conversation with David Corton is Tuesday, February 2nd at 5 p.m. Pacific time. The Seattle Town Hall virtual event is Thursday, February 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And the Books and Books virtual event in conversation with David Corton is Tuesday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Come support your local bookstores and hear about my new book on oligarchy. The links are all over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Uh, I'm going to uh, kick off with this story. I just want to tell you what's coming up. The Secretary of Defense issued a memo about the use of the National Guard on January 6th. This memo was issued on January 4th, two days before. It's looking increasingly like this was actually a planned attempted coup being directed from the White House, in my opinion, being directed from Donald Trump and his aides. Charles in Hollywood, Florida. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind? Hey, how you doing, Tom? I love your show. Good. My thing is this. I got two questions again, if if you have the time. Um, I think that in some type of way, the, you know, did or are the red state militias, are they in place today, not only here to intimidate, but also to prevent the eventual turning of black people killing white people in their sleep. Meaning, is that still a fallacy that they still hold on to that, you know, the the last bastion of hope in this country? And of course, my second question is... Well, let's let's finish with the okay. first question here first, Charles. Yes. You know, my response would be Michael Keaton's response in that movie where he played the union leader, where he said, you know, is a frog's ass water tight? Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and I assume by, by state militias, you're, you're not talking about the National Guard, which are the actual state militias, the militias that are referred to in the Constitution and the Second Amendment, that you're referring to these, these guys who run around in guns and camo out in the woods and call themselves militias, but they're not actually militias. They're, they're exactly. gangs. They're white guy gangs. So, yeah, of course. Okay, and you've been talking a lot about money in the system, and the way I look at it, money is the key in this political arena. Privatization oh, yeah. mutates into oligarchs. Climate, you know, so I'm just wondering if you could touch on what would it mean if you could take money out of the system. I'm proposing that if you have a political campaign and it's national, you should only be able to get at least $10 million. That should be it. $10 million is enough to feed so many families across this country. And I think what happens is, I said it before to you in the past when Bush was president, they have a de facto government. They have three arms of it. The Republican Party brings in the money. They have the, the church part of it where, you know, they keep people in line with the... Um, what do they call them, evangelicals? And of course the police, the cops and the militias, the right-wingers, that's the 
I guess the, the physical arm. You know the the, mm-hmm. the you know. But I I just want you to to I guess expand on when they get all these all this money for political contributions and they got this pocket. You know they got this war chest and also when they privatize when they do the privatization. Yeah. You're making oligarchs. You're absolutely right, Charles. Let me go off on that. And thanks for the call. And and in the future, let's try to keep it to one question. But I'm I'm totally with you. This is something that, you know, after the Nixon bribery scandals in in the early 1970s, Congress, during the Jerry Ford administration, for goodness sake, passed a whole bunch of of so-called good government legislation that provided for and expanded on government funding for elections, the check off the box on your tax returns to put money into the presidential election fund, that limited the amount of money that an individual could give to a political campaign. Um, Just a whole bunch of really great stuff. The Supreme Court blew that all up in 76 and 78. Senate Bill 1 and House Resolution 1, H.R. 1, the very first pieces of legislation that the Democrats are bringing to the floor of the House and the Senate is going to address that in some part among other things. It's also going to you know, address our voting infrastructure. And that's why I keep reading to you these emails that I'm getting from these right-wing groups like FreedomWorks who are right now already actively, aggressively campaigning against these legisl- pieces of legislation that have not yet been introduced. And right-wing hate radio is all over it because they know that their political power in this country is maintained by the financial power of the billionaires and giant corporations behind them, period, full stop. And when that money dries up, they are in deep, deep trouble. Eddie in Agra, Kansas. Hey, Eddie, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I was wondering if you would agree with me that there's a lot of these religious groups from uh, right to life, or not right to life, but the uh, people who are against abortion and stuff, to the marriage permits. All these people are counting on Trump and the revolutionaries to protect them, but they don't seem to realize that once the uh, Constitution is gone, these people will turn on them. All they're just using them is to uh, get themselves in power. Do you agree with that? I do, and history certifies the accuracy of your of your assertion, Eddie. I mean, look at what happened to all the groups that were supporting Hitler, including the business groups. I've got Fritz Tyson's book somewhere on one of these shelves. You know, it's called I Paid Hitler. I mean, that's the title of it. He was a German industrialist. And, you know, about halfway through the Hitler regime, Hitler turned on Tyson. T-H-Y-S-S-E-N, I think, or Owen. You know, the big steel magnate. He was the Andrew Carnegie of Germany in the 1930s. And that was just one example. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of... He will have serious problems. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Paul, you say Trump doesn't have Fifth Amendment rights? What am I missing? It's not a criminal trial. It's right in the Fifth Amendment. Right after the double jeopardy clause and right before the due process clause, nor shall be compelled in any criminal trial to become a witness against himself. This is not a, this isn't even a trial. Oh, interesting. This is a, this is a, well, no, the, it is a trial. The word trial is used in the impeachment clause in the, in the constitution, Paul, but well, it, true, you're right. But it, it's not specifically criminal. Yeah, it's, it's, well, you can be compelled to testify in a civil trial against yourself. O.J. Simpson was testified in his trial, the, the wrongful death trial. It's a criminal Excellent trial. Point. And yeah, so this Donald, and, and by the way, because Donald Trump is now a private citizen, he can be compelled to come to the trial, and otherwise he can, he can be uh, detained. Congress can have him, can, can ha- come and get him. Whereas if he were still had the protection of the office of the president, I think the courts, especially the, the Supreme Court, might say that 
the separation of powers might say that no, he doesn't have to come. That's what was going on before because they were talking about uh, subpoenaing Trump in the first impeachment, and that was the, sep- the they were talking about though the separation of powers might prevent that. But no, he doesn't. He can be. Co- he can be, and he should be. And Tom, I'm going to tell you something. This it specifically says in the Fifth Amendment in criminal. He's exempt. He would right. be exempt from only in criminal trial. Well, and, and I and and I didn't remember that either, Paul. And I appreciate your but, your uh, keeping us honest here. But the the thing is, Tom, this, we talk about shredding the Constitution. The Republican Party has basically reduced the Constitution to sandlot rules. If, if to remind people, sandlot rules are when you play baseball and you don't have enough enough players. You kind of make up, well, you know, four foul balls and you're out. And when you come up to back, you have to de- de- declare what field you won't hit it to right field or you're out. This is, no, this isn't the way it works. This is all legitimate. It's the law. It's the Constitution says you have to have the trial. And I think what these Republicans are afraid of is that the trial and the witnesses will, will show how many of them have actually con- connected to this, to this insurgency. And we are yes. dangerously on the, basically, I mean, the fact that the, the January 6th was the starting point, but just because Dan, January 6th ended and it became the 7th the next day doesn't mean we're out of the woods here. I find this to no. be the end of this republic to be very near. I agree. That's why I, I, I said, you know, what do you call a failed coup attempt? A rehearsal. And that's, uh, that's right. you know, that's what that's what January 6th has become. Paul, thank you. And thanks for uh, thanks for pointing that out to me. You do that often. And I always appreciate trying to make sure that all the information you get from this program is accurate. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the Tom Hartman program. Talk media for the rest of us. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's the Tom Marvin University Book Club. Our book today is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, 
by Ian Bremmer. This is from chapter one, titled Winners and Losers. It's time for a local revolution, the candidate told the roaring crowd. Countries are no longer nations, but markets. Borders are erased. Everyone can come to our country, and this has cut our salaries and our social protections. This dilutes our cultural identity. Marine Le Pen's four sentences capture every important element of the anxiety rising across the Western world. The borders are open and the foreigners are coming. They'll steal your job. They will cost you your pension and your health care by bankrupting your system. They will pollute your culture. Some of them are killers. Le Pen fell short in her bid to become France's president in 2017. But her message remains compelling for the 21st century politics of us versus them. But this is not a story about Marine Le Pen or Donald J. Trump or any of the other populist powerhouses who have emerged in Europe and the United States in recent years. Spin the camera toward the furious crowd. There's the real story. It's not the messenger that drives this movement. It's the fears, often, if not always, justified, of ordinary people. Fears of lost jobs, surging waves of strangers, vanishing national identities, and the incomprehensible public violence associated with terrorism. It's the growing doubt among citizens that government can protect them, provide them with opportunities for a better life, and help them remain the masters of their fate. As of December 2015, just 6% of people in the United States, 4% in Germany, 4% in Britain, and 3% in France believe the world is getting better. The pessimistic majority suspects that those with power, money, and influence care more about their cosmopolitan world than they do about their fellow citizens. Many citizens of these countries now believe that globalization works for the favored few, but not for them. And they have a point. Globalization, the cross-border flow of ideas, information, money, people, goods, and services, has resulted in an interconnected world where national leaders have increasingly limited ability to protect the lives and livelihoods of their citizens. In the digital age, borders no longer mean what citizens think they mean. In some ways, they barely exist. Globalism, the belief that the interdependence that created globalization is a good thing, is indeed the ideology of the elite. Political leaders of the wealthy West have been globalism's biggest advocates, building a system that has propelled ideas, information, people, money, goods, and services across borders at a speed and on a scale without precedent in human history. Sure, more than a billion people have risen from poverty in recent decades, and economies and markets have come a long way from the financial crisis. But along with new opportunities come serious vulnerabilities and the refusal of the global elite to acknowledge the downsides of the new interdependence confirms the suspicions of those losing their sense of security and standard of living that elites in New York and Paris have more in common with elites in Rome and San Francisco than, than with their discarded countrymen in Tulsa, Turin, Tuscaloosa, and Toulon. The globalists gutted the American working class and created a middle class in Asia, former White House strategist Steve Bannon told The Hollywood Reporter a few days after Donald Trump's 2016 election victory. The issue is now about Americans looking not to get effed over, end of quote. In the United States, the jobs that once lifted generations of Americans into the middle class and kept them there for life are vanishing. Crime and drug addiction are rising. While 87% of Chinese and 74% of Indians told pollsters in 2017 that they believe their country is moving in the right direction, only 43% of Americans said the same thing. In Europe, the European Commission and the unelected bureaucrats who enforce its rules have legislated for its 28 member nations 
In recent years, they've failed to halt a debt crisis that has forced many Europeans to accept lower wages, higher prices, later retirement, less generous pensions, and an uncertain future, all while telling them that they must bail out foreign countries that have spent their way into debt. In the migrant crisis, globalist European leaders insisted that all EU members must accept Muslim refugees in numbers determined in Brussels, and barricades and a spike in nationalism were the result. I'm defining nationalism here as one form of us versus them intended to rally members of one nation against those of other nations. Were the wave of populist nationalism sweeping the United States and Europe only signs of globalism's failure? It would be bad enough. But there's a larger crisis coming. Many of the storms creating turmoil in the U.S. and Europe, particularly technological change in the workplace, broader awareness of income inequality, are now headed across borders and into the developing world, where governments and institutions are not ready. Developing countries are especially vulnerable because the institutions that create stability in developing countries are not as sturdy, and social safety nets aren't nearly as strong as in the United States and the, and the European Union. They face an even bigger gap between rich and poor, and the reality that new technologies will kill large numbers of jobs that lifted expectations for a better life will be much harder to manage. In short, just as the financial crisis had a cascading effect through financial markets and real economies around the world, so the sources of anger convulsing Europe and America will send shockwaves through dozens of other countries. Some will absorb these shocks. Some of them won't. As poorer people in developing countries become more aware of what they're missing or losing, many will pick up rocks. The book Us Versus Them by Ian Bremmer. Richard in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. Um, in, in relation to, to uh, what's happening with Trump, I agree with the idea of having a subpoena, but what they need to do in addition to that is pull his passport. Yeah, I've been saying he's a flight risk from back in December. The reason I called, though, is I'm extremely angry again at uh, Rand Paul, and um, most specifically, I'm, I'm angry... Uh, that last year, he, uh, I'm sure McConnell's request, put a hold on a bill to keep prevent it from reaching the Senate floor for a federal anti-lynching law. Do you remember right. this? I do. And, and, you know, senators from the South have been at the forefront of preventing a federal anti-lynching law literally since the 1870s. In addition to revising the filibuster, that, the hold... Um, procedure has got to be revised too. This is this is just yeah. it's ridiculous that this can be done by a, a single stupid senator. Yeah, I, I confess, Richard, I am not sufficiently familiar with the hold procedures in the Senate to uh, to give you a cogent response to how it should be changed. Are you? Uh, well, I, okay. There's, the, I'll say this on the anti-lynching bill. I know mm -hmm. that he went ahead and put that hold on the bill at the request of Mitch McConnell, so McConnell never had to go ahead and bring it to the floor and right. allow a vote to happen on it to save McConnell's bacon uh, in the upcoming election from voting against the lynching bill. Now, the, the, the way the hold will work is it, it won't go to the floor, and they can put a hold on it for like 24 hours or some specific period of time. And what they've done is they'll go ahead and then they'll play ping pong with it. So they'll get another 
senator to go ahead and put that put their hold on it and then bounce it back to the first senator and you know in that method prevent a bill from ever getting to the floor now is there you know in the in the house of representatives there's this thing called a discharge petition where if you can get a majority of members of the house of representatives if the house if the speaker of the house is blocking legislation from coming to the floor if you can get a simple majority of members of the house to sign a discharge petition it overrides the speaker's basically hold on that bill um, and forces a vote on the legislation is there not something similar to that in the senate do you know richard I don't know that there is. I have I have not heard of it. If it is, I think it's basically up to being shamed and uh, and 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 called out to order on it. But I don't know of yeah. any bill that's actually been released from a hold and then entered into the floor for a vote. It's basically just a just a just a veto. Right. It's a good it's a good question to add to my list for the next time Ron Wyden or Jeff Merkley or Bernie Sanders or some other senator comes on this program. The rules of the Senate. I remember when Bernie first you know moved to the Senate and he was on this program every Friday back then. And he came on and somebody called with a question about the Senate. And he was like, I've only been here a few weeks and I haven't figured it out yet. It is complicated and convoluted. So I mean, he's obviously figured it out now. Yeah, there you go. Richard, thank you for the call. And thanks for pointing that out. It's the Tom Hartman program program exposing the con in conservative. You can find an absolutely fascinating library of my writings, including my daily rants, over at tomhartman.medium.com. Tom Hartman here with you, John in Danville, Illinois. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, Tom. I think they need Washington to become a state and get two more senators because I believe Joe Manchin and that other senator, they just said let the bidding begin because they will, yeah. you know, it's all about money, really. It's hidden. But, it's, you know, you get every vote, you get 50 or 100 million. You know, they got money. And this is not the time. What is right is supposed to be right and they know Schumer should know the playbook from Mitch McConnell and get things moving real fast because we only going to have two years because QAnon is remind me of the Tea Party and you know what happened there. (laughs) I agree John and I think that not only should DC become a state and by the way legislation to do that was introduced to the Senate yesterday by Senator Carper of Delaware as I recall. But I think that we should be seriously considering adding Puerto Rico as a state. And I think that the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is about 120,000 people, as I recall, and Guam, which I think is around 200,000 people, and maybe some of the other U.S. territories collectively could be called something like Islandia. You know, these are all island, essentially countries that are U.S. protectorates. They could collectively become one state because they would collectively have a population that's more or less that of Wyoming or Vermont. So that would give us three states that would be largely Democratic, six new senators, and by the way, there's precedent for this. You know, Abraham Lincoln added Nevada as a state. 
even though there was only 14,000 people living there at the time, and you had to have 120,000 at that time to have a state, but Lincoln did it anyway because he needed two Republican senators. And then uh, I forget which administration it was, but in the 1890s, another Republican president got the Dakota Territory, which in the entire Dakota Territory, there was fewer than 120,000 people, but he wanted four Republican senators. And so he split the Dakota Territory in half, created this artificial boundary of North Dakota, South Dakota, just to get four senators and pushed it through the House and Senate. And that, you know, helped cement a Republican majority in the Senate for years and years and years. So, you know, adding D.C. statehood, in my opinion, is a start. <laughs> but I'm totally with you, John. And I think you've absolutely nailed it. Thanks a lot for the call, John. It's great to hear from you. Bob in Ithaca, New York. Hey, Bob, what's up? Tom, I have a simple question. And that is, since Trump is now a private citizen, why can't a grand jury be convened and indict him for the crimes that he's committed rather than go through this all this impeachment with, and fight with the Republicans in the Senate? I think that is a great idea. I mean, you know, I believe that there are grand juries in New York City and New York State that are looking into Donald Trump's activities. But a federal grand jury looking into incitement to insurrection, sedition, I think is a great idea, Bob. And I would be fully supportive of that. In fact, I think a lot of people would be. Thank you for the call. Ivan in Bartlett, Illinois. Hey, Ivan, what's up? Hey, Tom. You know, Tom, I'm starting to think this thing is a lot deeper than we realize. This assault on the Capitol, if the if the Capitol Police had not regrouped and prevented that mob from taking congressional hostages, and had they not regrouped and pushed the mob back, this thing may have been successful. You know, I, I wonder, I wonder, where were the, these police in the beginning of the assault? Uh, you know, well, I, the I have we the answer to that, Ivan. TV were just standing around. Now, somebody had I to order the... them. To, to, to regroup and, and push that mob back. And whoever made that order saved our democracy, I think. Yeah. Well, that, that would be the Capitol Police and Muriel Bowser, you know, the mayor of Washington, D.C., who sent in the Metro Police. In fact, the police officer who committed suicide day before yesterday, um, probably suffering from a head injury. So many of these police officers ended up in the hospital with head injuries because many of them were sent in without helmets. And this fascist crowd beat them over the head with American flagpoles and Trump flagpoles was there and, at, you know, at, at her request. But I've got the document, the memorandum from from the acting secretary of defense, Christopher Miller. This is the guy that Donald Trump, he, you know, he fired the secretary of defense and he put in right. his stooge, his toady, specifically, right. in my opinion, specifically to set up the possibility that January 6th could be an actual coup against the United States. It's the Tom Hartman program helping you win the water cooler wars, the place where despair is not an option. Written on January 4th, and distributed to the National Guard and the Department of the Army. We'll be right back. On the Science Revolution, Dr. Justin A. Frank is here on the psychology of mob mentality and violence. What propels a mob? Dr. Sam Metz, a member of Mad as Hell Doctors, drops by on the need for federal legislation to allow individual states to create true statewide universal health care plans, especially single-payer plans. Plus, in geeky science, I've discovered how 11 minutes can save the quality of your life. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. 
Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. It's amazing how they are trying to normalize this stuff and, and, and what happened. I mean, it's just, it's just breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. <sighs> Let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Tom. Uh, I hope you're doing well. Um, what I'd like to talk about a little bit is uh, stopping the steal. And stopping the steal is a real thing. And what the steal has been is, is been the Republicans have been stealing from the lower and middle class for the last 40 years through Reaganomics. And it has yeah. to be turned around through, you know, increasing the tax rates back up to what they were normalized, 74 to 91 percent. And I'll tell you this, what we need to do is cinema and mansion need to be strong-armed or whatever it needs to be done. Get rid of this stupid filibuster. Start going bold. Start going big. Passing things for the, for the middle class and low class so that the, the Democrats can run on these accomplishments, because if they don't, we're, we're going to be exactly like you said, tossed to the wind, and we'll be, we'll be in the ash heap of history in, in 2024. And like I said before, you should, you should be the main advisor to the Democratic Party, and I mean that very sincerely, because we would be doing a lot better if you were. And also, these two people, this Taylor Green. And in, in, uh, I believe she's in Georgia, and Lorena Bobbitt or whatever yeah. her name is, Colorado. Those two people should be expelled from the from from Congress for what they've been doing. And that's well, a resolution much- for expelling Green has already been introduced into the House. Um, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but uh, you know, Hillary Clinton yesterday tweeted that she should be on a watch list, not in Congress. I completely agree with that. Um, but uh, Steve, uh, all your points, I salute. You know, spot on. And and like I said, if we don't, if if our government cannot demonstrate that government actually can work for people, if if people continue to give up on government and think that the only source of their help is going to be the philanthropy of billionaires or you know corporations tossing them a bone here and there, um, then you know January sixth was a rehearsal. That, you know, yes, it wasn't a failed coup, it was a rehearsal. Steve, Stop. thank you very much for the call. Appreciate it. Dwayne in Lincolnville, Kansas. Hey, Dwayne, what's on your mind? It's good to see you're healthy. Thank you. What I wanted to say is Donald Trump pardoned four people, four mass murders from Pakistan, mm-hmm. you know, what they did in Pakistan, as a message to the people coming to the capital on the 6th that they could be pardoned as long as he remains president. Are you talking about the news story this morning that the government of Pakistan basically pulled back on the sentences uh, of the people who murdered Daniel Pearl? Are, are you mixing two no, stories up here, or is there something I don't know about? Donald Trump pardoned four contractors in Pakistan for mass murder. Oh, U.S. former military contractors. Yeah, okay. U.S. former military contractors. So you're, and, and you're saying that was his way of saying you can go into the Capitol and kill uh, Nancy Pelosi, and I'll just let you off yeah, the hook. That was is a, that, a, is that, that your was assertion? A, Didn't those pardons happen after January sixth, or were they before? No, I, I frankly uh, don't recall. A couple of weeks before January sixth. Yeah. Okay. Dwayne, I'm going to have to fact check that because it's just, you know, it's not at the top of my memory, but that's a pretty strong assertion. Let me see what I can learn about it before I go and off on it. There was money sent to a lot of these fashion groups to come to the Capitol. I'm not saying that Donald Trump did it. Maybe some of his supporters did it, but there was money sent. And one of the uh, flat jackets that was left at the Capitol was only purchased two weeks before. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's there's some interesting reporting about how basically the people who have right wing Facebook pages, in other words, they like right wing things. Uh, some people, reporters, have set up like fake Facebook pages where they just follow a whole bunch of crazy right wingers. And what they're seeing, all the ads that they're seeing right now are for things like body armor. Facebook doesn't allow you to advertise guns, but you can advertise accessories. So body armor and devices that turn semi automatic weapons into fully automatic and stuff like that are apparently just exploding across right wing sites on Facebook right now. The other things I need to do a, a fact check here before I go off on. Them, but Dwayne, thanks for the heads up. I appreciate it. Joe in Villa Park, Illinois. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Back in uh, 2007, when my parents got underwater in their condo, we had to move them into a senior living facility. And I was helping them clean out under their sink in the boxes that uh, borrowed soap come in. There was like seven boxes of little soap chips that, you know, when the soap gets down to a point where it's hard to use. And I... Mm -hmm realize that there was a time in their life they were born in their early 30s that they had to go without soap and they knew that that yeah. could have that could happen again yep and about the uh, yep. squeezing the toothpaste tube in the door i use a little binder clips that's how they taught me yeah same thing yep see i mean it was like waste not want not that was my one of my mother's favorite phrases and she was not you know as obsessive and crazy about some of this stuff as my grandmother was but you know because she had just been a little kid during the great depression and it, it wasn't the horror of it wasn't as clear i think to her but she came of age during world war ii in the 1940s but we've been through this before but there's a huge difference during the great depression you had franklin roosevelt saying we can fix this and then going about and doing it and you had overwhelming support across america for this and the democratic party was very successful in bringing america back and building the strongest and most vibrant middle class in the history of the world and yes, Republicans tried to stop it. Republicans tried to stop Social Security. They called it communism and socialism. They tried to stop uh, long-term unemployment benefits. They called that communism and socialism. They tried to stop all of FDR's programs. The Supreme Court even shot down his initial effort to criminalize child labor. But eventually he got through on this stuff. It took, you know, six years before it really started, you know, grabbing hold. I mean, we saw results within the first six months of, the, of FDR's administration. His first hundred days were massive but you know it took a while to overcome the resistance of the right-wingers on the supreme court that took five years and it took a while to completely block republicans but you know basically republicans didn't hold political power from the time franklin roosevelt became president at least in the house of representatives until newt gingrich in the 1990s and that i think was because bill clinton caved you know, he caved into all the Republican stuff and said, okay, you know, we'll end big government as you know it. The era of big government is over. We'll end welfare as we know it. And, you know, he started spouting Reaganism stuff. And that was when I think people started turning on the Democratic Party, which is just so sad. Anyhow, thank you for the call. John in San Francisco. Hey, John, what's up? Good morning, Tom. I'd like to discuss Wadir with you in the Senate. Can we discuss this, please? Because, man, we got a huge opportunity to rule out some of the jurors on this committee that, who are going to rule okay, on... Okay, Vaudere is, is Latin for something, but I don't recall what. Please tell me. Jury selection. Refresh my memory here. Oh, jury selection. Jur okay. Yeah. And what I'm suggesting is, okay, Democrats make the rules now because they're in charge, right? Mm-hmm. And why not ask a test question of all the senators who they say there were a hundred that that were chosen or seated or whatever that 
they have to declare whether Trump won or lost, whether Biden won or lost. Well, here's the thing, John. They've got all these weasel words. I mean, on CNN, they were playing a clip of an interview with Josh Hawley where somebody said, well, you're not saying that the election wasn't fair. And he's like, no, I never said that. I never said that Biden isn't really the president. But I do think we need to investigate election irregularities. I call that talking out of both sides of your mouth. And that's the kind of crap you're going to get from these Republican senators if you try to put them under oath. I don't think that's going to work, John. I think that's going to just let them spread more doubt and misinformation. I think the way you do it is you present an absolutely compelling case and you point out how these Republican senators are perpetuating this big lie by the kind of BS that Josh Hawley was doing on television. I think this would be better show and tell for the American public if we really started off that way, presented it and try to nail them down. Because on Sunday, Rand Paul was saying, we need to do a 50-state investigation of the voting system, blah, 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 blah. And then on Monday, he's saying that Trump is no longer president. And I'm saying, you can't have it both ways. Either he's a you know, president yeah. or he's not. Anyway, back to you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, John. I'm with you. I disagree on tactics with you, but, you know, I, your suggestion, I don't know. Maybe they'll do it and maybe it'll work. Defending America from the weapons of mass deception. Hi, Tom Harpin here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly, remember the Boston Tea Party, to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan Revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, This is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. End quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 